This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I'm Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. This week, we begin our adventure into the life and work of one of the greatest fantasy writers of all time, J.R.R. Tolkien, the creator of The Hobbit, uh, the book we're going to read, but also the he's author of The Lord of the Rings, in case you oh, didn't yes. know. <laughs> And the Silmarillion and uh, Christy, those are his most important works, but they weren't his only works, were they? True, but he is known for his adventures, although that wasn't really what he did for a living. He was not, first and foremost, a novelist or even a writer, really. And he didn't fit into the mold of the writers of his day. His contemporaries were people like Ezra Pound, T.S. Eliot, James Joyce, Virginia Woolf, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and all these modern writers that he wasn't anything like, and he wasn't even really a part of their world. He is the very antithesis of the motto, make it new, as Ezra Pound's famously stated, modern writers most certainly should do. And in many ways, because of that, he hasn't been accepted. He wasn't accepted by the literary establishment of his day, and he hasn't been really accepted by the literary establishment today. Harold Bloom, and I've referenced him a lot because I read a lot of his commentaries, I own a lot of his commentaries, called him moralizing, which I don't agree with. But anyway, many critics have found his writings awkward and unprogressive, and when they talk about the things they don't like about him, I can't say that they're wrong. He can be awkward, and he's definitely not progressive. He's trying to be regressive. He was doing a totally different thing, ironically, an ancient thing, not a new thing. He wanted to make myths. I guess you could say he was making something new, but it certainly wasn't in the sense that Pound or the other modern writers were doing. He had no interest in that. <laughs> well, it does seem a little ironic that the establishment wanted 
him to make it new in the exact same way as everyone else was making it new. And <laughs> I know. So some might suggest that's the very opposite of new. And it's just like everybody, everybody All in the world the being unique. All the trends are always like that. I'm going to be cutting edge just like everybody else. Yes. <laughs> it's incredibly ironic. And it didn't make him live a life without adversity. Uh, C.S. Lewis, Tolkien's lifelong friend. We'll talk about that in another episode. But he had a terrible and famous antagonism with T.S. Eliot. In fact, they've been called nemesis. Oh, my <laughs> Poetic nemesis. I know. I looked. I couldn't find anything about Tolkien. So I think he stayed out of that fray. But uh, his writings were way more along the line of Lewis's than anybody else's, like Fitzgerald, especially like Eliot. Uh, although they were both using words, I'm not sure their writings should be compared. So I want to compare them. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, as we should. More irony, and I guess we're going to go down that road again. Ironically, we're not going down irony road uh, in a modern world. And when I say modern, remember, I'm not talking about now. I want to talk about World War. I have such trouble saying that. <laughs> Saying that word, World War One. W's and L's and R's should never be in the same word. That's just my it tip. It happens quite a bit. <laughs> it's terrible. But in World War One world, I said it properly. It's a lot of W's. Psychology was very important. It played an important role in what writers were writing about, how they were writing, how they were thinking about writing. Obviously, proof rock, think Godspeed. But in all these works, there's this deliberate style of manipulating language. We see the puns and the metaphors and the synecdoche and the metonymy and the irony. Most important. <laughs> yes. But these are all semantics. Semantics means you're playing with words. Tolkien did none of that sort of wordplay. Whereas in Gatsby, everything is a symbol. In Lord of the Rings, nothing is. Nothing is allegory. Which is why I don't understand why Bloom finds him to be particularly moralizing, but I won't, I'll get off of that. <laughs> well, the characters do have uh, moral codes and values, and that is kind of a motif all the way through, especially when we start talking about elves and things. I mean, I guess in that sense you're right. But for Tolkien, that's, that's the historical nature of myths. That's what they're about. They express values of a culture. It's not about... I don't know, personal themes. He doesn't want to comment on modern life and modern man. Tolkien has no interest in telling us how we should live our lives. So all that kind of stuff. And I know I have gotten deep into that with some of these modern writers. Mm -hmm. We are not supposed to be reflecting on ourselves when we read The Hobbit or any of his books. In fact, it's the opposite. We're supposed to be getting out of ourselves. My kids like to say, get out of your feels. <laughs> The stories are fantasy. In the preference to Lord of the Rings, he asserts very emphatically, and he's going to say, this book has no symbolic meaning or message, no purpose other than to, and let me quote him properly, hold the attention of readers, amuse them, delight them, and at times maybe excite them and deeply move them. He's going to go on to say, because I'll skip tons of it, let me quote, History, true or feigned to allegory, the latter implies domination by the author. 
whereas history bestows freedom on the reader since it represents accidents, real or imagined, as accidents, things that just happen to happen. So in other words, you know, real life is more unexpected than allegory that people make. But anyway, that's what we have in The Hobbit, starting with an unexpected party. <laughs> well, I would like to point out before we move on to a historical sense how interesting it is that uh, Tolkien is the uh, anti-modernist. He really wanted to be in some sense, and here he lives on and on and on. <laughs> well, from a historical sense, I can see why these books were so immediately successful during the time period Tolkien wrote them. I mean, uh, despite the celebrations and parties and parades that we see in all the photographs about the end of World War One. That war left the world in a super dark, nihilistic place. And I think if you've listened to our past podcast... Yeah, you can see it. You know exactly how dark and nihilistic it was. Uh, people's hearts were broken and confused and anguished by the, the most destructive war that the world had ever seen. And um, historian Paul Johnson has called the First World War the disastrous epic for mankind. I mean, no one was untouched by death. And that's not hyperbole. That's actually a historical fact. That's so hard for me to comprehend. I remember when we went to France a couple of years and saw some of those battlefields. It made me kind of realize, because we in America haven't had this experience. For us, things like war happen far away to other people, or you can volunteer to go as a career, but even many soldiers don't go with the expectation of dying. And that's so different from this reality in you know Tolkien's real life war was personal Christopher Tolkien J.R.R.'s son said in this documentary that I watched you know when I was thinking about what to say in the podcast he said that Tolkien as a young man was known he used the word jovial he was funny and fun and he had all these friends and then he went to war uh, all of them did Tolkien went in March of 1916, and he was involved in, I can't say this word right. Psalm. <laughs> yes, Psalm. He was in the Psalm offensive. Uh, and when he came back from that, everyone that he had known, that he had gone to school with, except one guy, was dead. And that is not an uncommon story for World War it's I. It's unimaginable. Right. Uh, well, there, there was that was the experience of the entire world. Uh, in that offensive you mentioned... Psalm. The Psalm offensive. Uh, the British casualty list was over 600,000 in just four months. I mean, that's a major city anywhere. And here's another brutal reality. Uh, there was no ground gained. So basically... It was pretty much pointless death. So they just shot at each other in the same place. Well, we don't have time to talk about trench warfare <laughs> in World War One, but it was that's where we get the nihilism from. Yeah, well, Tolkien's writings obviously have death in them, but it's not like Eliot's. For Tolkien, and this to me is such a thought worth thinking about because it applies. It applies to COVID. It applies to a lot of things. The way out of despair and into life. He says, we have a tool for that. We have a way out of what he calls the primary world. And that is through our imagination and into what he calls the secondary world. Now, another criticism of Tolkien, and really actually all fantasy liter literature really in general, is people say, well, that's escapist. But Tolkien answers that accusation. And because he's going to say that it's not 
like you're trying to create an altered reality. You're not trying to deny reality or pretend that it doesn't exist or try to escape it in that sense. I kind of think of it, I've always accused video gamers of that, to be honest, even though that might be an unfounded accusation because I don't know much about video game world. But uh, Tolkien says that's not what fantasy is at all. He says fantasy fiction doesn't provide escape as in the sense of you're deserting reality, but for the admirer, the reader, the creator of fantasy, what you use it for is to resist domination or being defined by your current reality. In other words, it keeps you, being able to have that keeps you from being consumed and empowers the reader to confront the challenges of what he calls the primary world. That is a pretty significant definition. It really is. Uh, it, it, it's interesting, but it's a, but a subtle distinction. Escapism, um, in the first sense, is unhealthy and negative, but in the sense he's describing... He's creating a positive force of uh, personal empowerment and coping. That's exactly right. He's not the first person to kind of make this distinction. You know, other people have done it. They just didn't use the kind of terminology and the deliberate discussion that Tolkien had when he was confronted with this kind of challenge. William Blake, actually, who we talked about a little bit back, said a lot of these same kind of things when he was talking about imagination. And he tried to create for us through his engravings in our primary world, the visions of his secondary world. And Blake talked about that. And he thought that the energy and the courage to reinvent the world using your imagination was imagination in its freest form. Wow. What a lofty interpretation. I know. And these are really old. I know I went a little bit deep, but I just think that's kind of a really cool idea. It's a great perspective. <laughs> Uh, well, and so Chrissy, since it's a new book day, you know, I want to get into the life and of times course. of Tolkien himself, but, uh, since he basically did create a new sub genre of fantasy <laughs> and did. how many people get to do that, uh, I think it would be helpful at least for me to define fantasy per se, because I'm not so sure I, I know if I could. Sure. Fantasy literature is something we're all familiar with, whether we use that term for it or not. There's so many good and popular fantasy worlds out there that have come after Tolkien, not just books, movies, and we all love them. Harry Potter, Star Wars, Pirates of the Caribbean, these are all fantasies. I mean, Disney has totally exploited the genre. Yeah, they've got it figured out. Uh, yeah. In some ways, even against Tolkien's insistence, a lot of these are actually metaphorical. I mean, how could they not be? But what marks fantasies is that there's a supernatural world and it is definitely not our world. They take us out of our world and they're marked by these archetypal heroes. A lot of the heroes are orphans. These are unlikely heroes. They do things like they go on quests and they encounter elements of the supernatural, things that could not and do not exist in our world. They always, well, not always, I'm never going to say always, but they often, most often have wise counselors. They have these traveling companions that they get to build relationships with and have fun with. And they always, I will say always here, conquer evil Foes. Yes, indeed. Some of them, especially the modern ones, because we just can't get away from this, 
will have social commentary, but Tolkien totally frowns on that sort of thing. He thinks that defeats the purpose. You're not supposed to do that when you're creating these secondary worlds. I want to read another famous Tolkien quote. And I have him vision. I don't know, in my mind. I've watched some videos of him. But in my mind, I have him pegged as this stuffy old professor. And this is, sounds like something a stuffy professor would say. Let me just say it. I should like to say something here to the many opinions or guesses that I have received or have read concerning the motives and meanings of the tale. The prime motive was the desire of a tale-teller to tell his, try his hand at a really long story that would hold the attention of the readers, amuse them, delight them, and at times maybe excite them or deeply move them. As for any inner meaning or message it has in the intention of the author, none. It is neither allegorical nor topical. I cordially dislike allegory in all of its manifestations. <laughs> so you're saying it's not an allegory. <laughs> I think he means that. And, he, and you're also saying that the story really doesn't mean anything. There's no symbols. No symbols. He's okay. very firm in this insistence in well, spite of everyone trying to make it. It is not an allegory. <laughs> so we are taking a 180 degree turn from the Great Gatsby. Yes. I think people just assume because he's best friends with C.S. Lewis and C.S. Lewis is Narnia stories are allegory that Tolkien's were too and he is not happy about this <laughs> well that and the fact that he was a deeply devoted man of faith yeah I think they think well since you're a Christian then you, you must be writing everything Christian and he just didn't want people to think that and it wasn't because he was running from that Elliot was a Christian and people don't do that to him but this is a good segue I guess uh, to get into his personal life if we're going to do it before we jump into meeting Bilbo Baggins and jumping out of the primary world and into the secondary world. Let's talk about that. Okay. Well, that's a great plan. Uh, we'll get past the title today. Um, I know sometimes we don't. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Uh, yes. The goal is to get through chapter one, but let's see how it goes. You know, we don't want to get past that metaphorical bell at the end of class. Metaphorical. He would, Tolkien would be most unhappy. <laughs> and here I thought we weren't going to do metaphors anymore. I know. Well, Tolkien does not approve. That's for sure. And we quite literally are not doing non-metaphorical bells either for us. Because if you're listening to this in real time... And if in the United States, we are in the second week of June, 2021, and it's summer break. No bells. <laughs> we just finished. School's out. The most notorious school year of my lifetime, COVID year. Mm. It was good to say goodbye. Many students around the world didn't have bells at all this year. But hopefully we will live in the promise that by fall or spring, depending on what side of the equator you live on, you'll get to hear a bell soon. Uh, we, we sincerely hope and pray that's true. We do. All right, here we go. Biography. John Ronald Rule Tolkien, born January 3, 1892, in South Africa, amazingly. His father worked for the Bank of Africa. The climate, though as well as the spiders, mm. really frightened Tolkien's young mother, Mabel. So they decided collectively that she was going to return to England with her sons. This is when little Ronald, as he was called at the time, he was only three years old. The father had to finish up work, and he was going to come back later on that year. But unfortunately, 
he contracted rheumatic fever and died there in Africa. So Tolkien, this of course affected them financially, and he knew what it was like to have humble origins. Mabel lived for a little bit with her parents, but ultimately she preferred, understandably, to rent little cottages where she raised her two sons by herself. The most important thing, I think, to come out of this period uh, was because Mabel converted to Roman Catholicism when J.R.R., if we're going to call him by his initials, was only eight years old. Of course, uh, you have to understand this was a very unpopular decision for Mabel to make during that time period. England was openly and virulently anti-Catholic during those years. And to be Catholic was uh, to be un-British in the minds of a lot of people. Yeah, I really didn't know that. But it's certainly the case for her family, especially her immediate family. They cut her off financially because she would not denounce her Catholic faith. I read in a letter that Tolkien wrote about his mother. He said this, and let me quote, She was a gifted lady of great beauty and wit, greatly stricken by God with grief and suffering, who died in youth at 34 of a disease hastened by persecution of her faith. She actually died of diabetes, but the rejection, the stress that the rejection called and the financial challenges that that rejection created definitely hastened, you know, her demise. Tolkien was only 12 years old, and he and his little brother, Hillary, were now orphans. She left them in the care of Father Francis Morgan, who agreed to be their legal guardian. He was just their local priest. He took responsibility for them and made sure that they were provided for. Of course, it's understandable that uh, part of Tolkien's absolute commitment to the Catholic faith was in part a tribute to the commitment his mother showed. and It was his identity all of his life. But more than that, the values instilled by his mother and Father Francis informed how he viewed the world. And the values of Tolkien are also the values of Middle Earth. And I think that's why people might say it's moralizing because it is a world that has certain codes. But, you know, you get to do that when you create your own world. I would love it. (laughs) You get to write your own book if you want. Uh, Changing subjects a little bit. I, of course, can't hesitate to mention Tolkien's love life. It's so sweet. He, (laughs) I know. He fell in love with a girl named Edith who was also an orphan. She was three years older than him, and she was not a Catholic. So Father Francis did not approve of this relationship, and he forbade Tolkien to continue it or even communicate with Edith until he turned 21. Sweet, dutiful Tolkien obeyed his guardian and focused on his schooling. His efforts were obviously rewarded because he gained admission into Exeter College in Oxford, and he got to study language and literature, which he wouldn't have been able to do had he not had high marks. But let me say this. Five days after he turned 21, which would have been in his junior year, by the way we Americans talk about that kind of stuff, he revisited Edith. Hmm. And right after she converted to Catholicism, but she did, They were formally engaged to be married, and Tolkien graduated in 1915. He enlisted in the service, received his commission as second lieutenant, went to training, and in March of 1916, he used his very last military leave to 
marry Edith. The Tolkien's will have four children. <laughs> ah, well, there you go. Finally, uh, happily ever after, at least in his personal life. I think so. You know, we don't usually say this, but I think he did have a happy personal life. Although, Tolkien, I don't want to give the impression, I must say this, he was not a feminist. A man of his generation, for sure. But he and Edith got on well. They had a happy life. And he seems to me, from what I can read in his letters, that he loved and doted on his children. He made all these stories for them. Lots of them people have published, not just The Hobbit. He wrote Christmas stories. And he would write these letters from Santa. And he would make up these stamps that came from the North Pole. It's a lot of effort. He was a very present father. And I just think it's nice. Hmm. So, uh, moving out of the personal and uh, into the professional, when we see the career choices that Tolkien made after the war, it makes sense that so much of his legacy has to do with names and places uh, and the history of places. It was the driving focus in his life. But I think it's worth mentioning that the book that would eventually become The Silmarillion, in some sense, uh, 60 years later after he died, he actually started during the war, even in the trenches. But a big chunk of it while recovering from trench fever in 1917. And uh, the myths that are the world he created and all the stories clearly were spinning in his head from early on and developed over the years, really uh, kind of a sped up version of how myths actually develop. You know, I really think that's true. And next week, I do want to tell a little bit of the story of the Silmarillion, because when I read The Lord of the Rings and I read The Lord of the Rings many times, I read it as a junior hire. I read it again. Uh, as a young adult, but I was really confused about all the history and knowing a little bit about the story of the Samuel Rillian, I think helps you understand a little bit more of the Hobbit, even though there isn't a real direct correlation. So we'll talk about that next week. But today, let's get, I know we're talking about the author, so we'll get back to the war. After the war, Tolkien joined the staff of, and this is cool, the Oxford English Dictionary. And he did well, and he got promoted, and this led to that, and this led to that. But eventually, he's going to become the Anglo-Saxon professor that we know from Oxford University, and he had that job for 34 years. He loved teaching. Hmm. Yay! It was his passion. Of course, I love that. He loved the research and writing part. He loved advancing students, and he graded lots of papers, something we know something about. Oh, to be <laughs> sure. Well, truth be told, he might never have published anything because he was a professor. That's how he thought of himself, were it not for his friends. And in particular, one famous one, C.S. Lewis, who really, really did encourage him to publish and to write. In 1936, he let himself be talked into submitting from publication a story that he really wrote for his kids called There and Back Again, which we know as The Hobbit. It was a children's book, so the publisher, Stanley Unwin, employed, this is so cute, his 10-year-old son, Rainer, to read it, and he paid him one shilling. Hmm. Now, Gary, I have to ask, I've heard that word shilling a lot of times, and I've never understood what it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, most Americans don't. Uh, and when we study it, we can get totally confused because a British pound is worth 20 shillings. Half a sovereign is 10 shillings. A crown is five shillings and a florin is worth two. And there are 12 pennies in a shilling. I don't know how people keep up with that. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, uh, because it was their money and in their best interest to do so, they could keep up with it. And the the British used this system for centuries, and I think this is what's really cool. The system really dates back to the Roman occupation. Uh, but just as a reference for young Rainer, he could buy a pack of gum for one penny. So for an entire shilling, he could get 12 packs of gum. <laughs> That's great compensation for his raving review of Tolkien's work. And uh, I love his one paragraph critique where he said, now remember he's 10, the book says, should appeal to all children between the ages of five to nine. Oh, so as a 10-year-old, it was a little bit above him. (laughs) Or beneath him, I would like to say, maybe so, but he was right. It definitely appealed and more than just that crowd, it sold well and Unwin asked Tolkien to write a sequel, and he did. That sequel would take another 12 years before he got to the trilogy that turned him into an icon, and that's a story some of us might have heard of before. (laughs) I think it's called Lord of the Rings or something like that. Yeah, he had no idea this was going to be the turning point in his life. He would become a myth, and the story to me of how it all happened is a little bit of a myth. He says, and I watched this little video of him, and he said this. I watched it. It was the summer of 1930. He had just moved into a house, and he was grading piles of student exams. That's terrible work, we know. (laughs) I know. Dull and mind-numbing. And when he talked about it in the video, he kind of said that. But these are. this is what he exactly said. I had an enormous pile of exams. I remember picking up a paper and actually finding... There was one page that was left blank, so I scribbled on it, and I can't think why. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. And so it began. (laughs) Later on, Tolkien said that he had to decide, you know, what actually is a hobbit, and he made it up from there. Well, what is it? Well, let's let Tolkien tell us. What is a hobbit? Read for us what he says it is on page two of The Hobbit. I suppose hobbits need some description nowadays since they have become rare and shy of the big people, as they call us. They are, or were, a little people, about half our height, and smaller than the bearded dwarves. Hobbits have no beards. There's little or no magic about them except the ordinary, everyday sort, which helps them to disappear quietly and quickly when... Large, stupid folk like you and me come blundering along, making a noise like elephants, which they can hear a mile off. They are inclined to be fat in the stomach. They dress in bright colors, chiefly green and yellow. They wear no shoes because their feet grow natural, leathery soles and thick, warm brown hair, like the stuff on their heads, which is curly, have long, clever brown fingers, good-natured faces, and laugh deep, fruity laughs, especially after dinner, which they have twice a day when they can get it. Now you know enough to go on with. As I was saying, the mother of this hobbit, of Bilbo Baggins, that is, was the fabulous Belladonna Took, one of the three remarkable daughters of the old Took, head of the hobbits, who lived across the water, the small river that ran at the foot of the hill. It was often said, in other families, that long ago, one of the Took ancestors must have taken a fairy wife. That was, of course, absurd, but certainly there was still something not entirely hobbit-like about them, and once in a while, members of the Took clan would go and have adventures. They discreetly disappeared, and the family hushed it up. 
But the fact remained that the Tooks were not as respectable as the Bagginses, though they were undoubtedly richer. Not that Belladonna Took ever had any adventures after she became Mrs. Bungo Baggins. Bungo, that was Bilbo's father, built the most luxurious hobbit hole for her, and partly with her money, that was to be found either under the hill or over the hill or across the water, and there they remained to the end of their days. Still, it is probable that Bilbo, her only son, although he looked and behaved exactly like a second edition of a solid and comfortable father, got something a bit queer in his makeup from the Took side, something that only waited for a chance to come out. The chance never arrived until Bilbo Baggins was grown up, being about 50 years old or so, and living in a beautiful hobbit hole built by his father, which I have just described for you, until he had, in fact, apparently settled down immovably. By some curious chance, one morning long ago, in the quiet of the world, when there was less noise and more green, and the hobbits were still numerous and prosperous, and Bilbo Baggins was standing at his door after breakfast, smoking an enormous long wooden pipe that reached nearly down to his woolly toes, neatly brushed, Gandalf came by. You know, that passage that you read is just everything Tolkien. It has history. It has scenery. It has tradition. It has so many things. It has magic. And so we have gone into that hobbit hole and into Tolkien's glorious secondary world. And I want to I've used that word several times, and I want to define it. It's a term that Tolkien made up. Tolkien said that the secondary world is a consistent fictional world. And what he means by that is that an author will create parameters and then respect his own parameters. There'll be this internal consistency making a real place, but it's not a real place. It's in our minds. We have to suspend our reality, and we go like we just did, into that secondary world. And we have to understand, because they'll be explained to us, the rules of this new world. And then this world will take on this life of its own. We see this, you know, if you've ever watched the Star Wars movies, that makes sense. We understand and believe that lightsabers can exist because there are rules that govern what they can and cannot do that are consistent in that world. We don't think that you can really levitate, but we understand what the force is. And so we understand that the force can make you levitate because Lucas just created for us this secondary world. In Tolkien's case, there's a lot involved and, you know, really actually in Lucas's too. The secondary world has its own geography. It has its own languages. It has its own timelines. You saw that. It has its own genealogy. You saw that too. And in this world, everything is imagined, but it's also interdependent. If you open up, well, at least my copy of The Hobbit, before you get to the first page, there's two pages just of maps. And the maps have words on them that I can't read because they're not written in English. They're written in some Elvish script that I can't even understand the letters because it's not even our alphabet. Is it true? Because I've always heard this, that uh, Tolkien made up his own languages. Well, it's absolutely true. And I'll talk a little bit about this next week because the Silmarillion is about elves and most of the languages belong to elves and the first and the second age and all that. That happened way before little Bilbo ever showed up. But, 
you know, for Tolkien, and I thought this was so interesting, the languages came first. He made up the languages well before he made up the story because Tolkien loved languages. He loved the history of languages. He loved phonetics and how words came together and the history and the culture that was embedded in all of the different languages that he had studied over the years. He actually spoke, and this is so amazing to me, 35 languages. Not all of them people even use. Can we uh, call him a word nerd? (laughs) He was. Things like Latin and Old Norse. He understood what made, he understood the essence of languages. So when he wrote Kenyan or this high elvish dialect, which is just one of the dozens of languages Tolkien just created for the inhabitants of Middle Earth. Let's talk about Kenya. It's an elvish language. It's part of the elvish language family. And just in the elvish language family, he created 15 languages and they're all different dialects. And, you know, they have a complete language with a grammar and everything. He invented a sign language, if you can believe it, among his many languages for dwarves. One time, and this is so weird, Tolkien said he wished that the book wasn't in English at all, that he would have preferred to have written it in (laughs) Elvish. (laughs) Wow. Well, that really would have cut down on readership. (laughs) Since no one speaks Elvish. (laughs) Only one person speaks Elvish. Well, that's what you think. How do you even know there aren't elves out there? At that time. (laughs) Okay. Well... The thing is, he understood how languages evolve. And I I read about this because that didn't make sense to me either. You don't, and because a lot of his languages didn't have like a massive vocabulary. You didn't need one. For example, they didn't have pepperoni pizza and elves. <laughs> Not relevant to elves. Right. So you don't have to make up a word for that. You only have to make up the words that you need. But what you have to have are the etymologies and the phonetics and the grammar to make things consistent. He didn't just put any two sounds together. He had to make the words sound like they go together. You know, I guess let me put it this way. When I lived in Japan for a year teaching English, I didn't live there long enough to learn how to speak Japanese, but I certainly knew Japanese when I heard it. I understood the sounds that they were making. I knew how they fit together. If someone said something that was in a different language, I could tell if it was or wasn't Japanese. And if they pretended, I could tell if they were faking it or not. Same thing. He, you can tell these languages have this internal consistency about them. The grammatical patterns are consistent. The cadence is consistent. The phonetics are consistent. It's crazy. I don't know how he did it. Uh, and he did it for the sport of it. That's what's wild. Exactly. He did it because that was his field of study and he wanted to understand it better. It's incredible. He said this one time, the basic pleasure in the phonetic elements of a language and in the style of their patterns and in then the higher dimension, pleasure in the association of these word forms and meanings is of fundamental importance. This pleasure is quite distinct from the practical knowledge of a language and not the same as an analytic understanding of its structure. It is simpler, deeper rooted, and yet more immediate than the enjoyment of literature. So he really believes that there is joy in words. Right. I mean, he loved words for their own sake and just not for what they could do alone. And he understood them. I mean, I said that he spoke 35 languages. 
that's true, but it's also not true. He could read and write <laughs> in 35 languages. He wasn't, I don't know that he would have been fluent like we think of fluency today. Well, uh, I know we need to get back to hobbits because that was my first question, but let me ask one more question about these languages. Why make up so many? I mean, just because you can? Partly, maybe. But Tolkien understood language, and I was going to say this before. He understood language the way we think of culture. He hated Esperanto. You remember that? <laughs> yes. Yeah, okay, is this made-up language that was supposed to facilitate culture between people? Because he said Esperanto doesn't have history. It doesn't have mythology. It doesn't have legends. It doesn't have stories. And he says that's what language is. Every word is a story. So you think of the word Memphis. It's actually the Greek, I looked this up because I really didn't know, the Greek adaptation of menifer, which means enduring and beautiful. That was, and was, of course, it comes from the Egyptian capital of lower Egypt, a 3,000, well, it's over, what, 9,000-year-old name. But Tennessee, we don't live in that Egypt. We live in the Tennessee <laughs> one. And they took that word because they were wanting to talk about the Mississippi River. So Memphis is on the river, and it's meant to describe the river as being enduring and beautiful. So that's what enticed Tolkien. These names, these words, these histories, these everything, it's deep. And so when he creates the secondary world, he doesn't want to just create a story. The story is nothing. It's the depth that he wants to build. And so you have to have the languages. Well, <laughs> and so the big question is, uh, where did the inspiration come from for the Hobbit? Okay. Well, the idea is we're hobbits. Hobbits are us. They're identical to humans. We get to identify with him. To be specific, and let me be very specific, they're middle-class British citizens from the early part of the 20th century who lived in the area of Britain that he grew up in. And so they're English people, regular people, maybe even in his case, in the case of the character Bilbo Baggins, underconfident average people coping in a world but they get to be dropped in a fantastical world. And they're challenged by things that other people think are too big for them. They're underestimated people. When we meet Bilbo, he's doing what English people, we think of them doing. He's <laughs> drinking tea. Drinking tea. It's, what could be more English? He's very English in his tastes and his attitudes. And I'm, I'm not talking about the English of today. I, I know that we still drink tea, but... The English of Tolkien's day are Bilbo Baggins in, in some sense. So in chapter one, you know, the dwarves are not impressed with him at all. He's just an average guy and they underestimate him. They don't see the value in him. And isn't that what we always think, that people don't understand our personal greatness? But Gandalf does. He sees something in Bilbo. And isn't that what Gatsby does? He sees yes. something. <laughs> Same As we idea. wish to be seen. <laughs> As we wish to be seen. And Gandalf insists that they bring Bilbo, basically so they don't have that unlucky traveling number. But, you know, this is Bilbo. He values things that British people 
value. He's not a burglar. He's a host. He's running around being a good one. He's Everyone is being taken care of and they're being well fed. And he represents respectability and, and things that we respect, or at least we're supposed to respect. So Bilbo is our entry into the secondary world. And the one way that Tolkien takes us into the secondary world is through the differences in language. If you'll notice, Bilbo speaks like we do, like regular people. Don't wait to knock, tea at four, what about a little light? He speaks in the way that people would have spoken in the turn of the century. But Gandalf doesn't speak like that. He uses these archaic speech patterns because Gandalf is from that world and we're from this world. It's subtle, but it's our entry point. We can also see the difference in the two worlds by the values. Um, Bilbo values respectability and hospitality and his appearance and his garden. And the dwarves and Gandalf have these lofty values of combat and courage and things of heroes and legends. Yes, and just like us, when Bilbo listens to them, the took in him, and don't we all have a little bit of took in us? We get caught up in it, and there's magic, and there's excitement. Oh, yes, the took side. <laughs> well, if you're reading fantasy, you have to have a took side, or you wouldn't be reading it by definition. You're a little tooks, but if you're reading, maybe you've got a nerd, so you're a little baggins, too. <laughs> ah. Well, there is a very famous letter by uh, Tolkien where he said this, I am, in fact, a hobbit in all but size. I like gardens, trees, and unmechanized farmlands. I smoke a pipe and like good plain food unrefrigerated, <laughs> but detest French cooking. <laughs> I like it even dare to wear in these dull days ornamental waistcoats. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, hit he's, on French cooking. I know. He's just like Bilbo. But we are also, whether you fit that description or not, we are going to be taken in and invited into this wonderful secondary world and beautiful landscapes. And there'll be trolls and orcs and elves and, of course, dragons. Oh, no, we definitely cannot forget the dragons. We can't because for over the misty mountains cold to dungeons deep and caverns old, we must away our break of day to see the pale enchanted gold. This is a little song that Bilbo listened to when the dwarves came by and they sucked him in because it talked about all the things, the ancient kings, the elvish lords, the misty mountains, and of course, the dragons. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And next week, um, I guess that's where we'll go, uh, into the caves and through the mountains, looking for gold and adventure. And uh, We hope you enjoyed this first discussion of The Hobbit. And next week, we'll begin our journey to the Misty Mountain, learn about elves and orcs in all the ages of Middle Earth. Thanks for being with us. Uh, please check us out on all of our social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Also, visit our website, howtolovelitpodcast.com. Got lots of great information there for you and all of our past works that you can listen to. And we always like to remind you, please email an episode to a friend. Peace out.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.